Hi, everybody. It's fun to have a microphone on. Good morning. Welcome to New Hope Community Church. Um, hey, I just wanted to mention uh, before we get into the sermon that, um, you know, uh, we, we are um, still hearing from the diocese that they would prefer um, uh, us to be in what's called the, the orange phase of the reopening plan. Uh, for as far as facility is concerned uh, and so what that means is that for the moment we are still uh, asking folks to be masked during service um, we do this out of an abundance of caution uh, I realize that it's an inconvenience um, I know for me I'm actually I was sitting there thinking that gosh I'm grateful that I get to preach the sermon this morning because I don't have to wear a mask and I was like gosh that's an awful thing for me to be thinking about and like Anyway, it just, it just wanted to let you know that they're actually not looking for like an arbitrary number on this kind of thing. There actually is a, a kind of a window that they're looking for in regards to how they know when we're going to go into what's called the, or, the yellow phase of, re, of re-entry, which is, uh, you know, where we're, it's more of a mask optional uh, time. And hopefully we will be there before, not, not before, um, before t- not too long. Uh, so hopefully that'll, uh, that'll happen sooner rather than later. And I just wanted to thank you um, for your cooperation. Um, and like I said, it's uh, making the most of, a, of, a, of a, what continues to be a difficult time. Um, but uh, I just wanted to say how much I appreciate all of you in that. So, um, as I mentioned before, we're continuing the book of Daniel this morning. Um, and, uh, man, you're just... I know you were like itching when, we, when you heard we were going to start a, 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 a sermon series on the book of Daniel. You were like, I can't wait till we get to talk about Daniel 8. You know, no, probably, probably not. As you're gonna, if, you, if you've ever been in the chapter before, you'll see as we go through, it's not like exactly one that smacks you in the face with application. But um, I hope that we can uh, glean something from this today. But um, as I've mentioned before, when, uh, when I was in college, uh, I interned at Grace Fellowship Church um, with uh, nothing but a feeling in my gut that God wanted me in vocational ministry. I walked into Grace and I asked for a job. Um, And it it might not seem like a big deal, uh, but the truth is that at the time, at 18 years old, that was actually the boldest thing I'd ever done in my life. And by some miracle, they said yes. And also, miraculously, um, the people that I became close to on staff during those two years that I was there were also many of the same people who helped plant New Hope Community Church, um, and uh, which Amy and I started to attend um, the Sunday after we were married in 2003. But, but while I was at Grace, while I interned at Grace, what I did was I interned in the elementary ministry. I worked mainly with elementary kids, and mostly I printed curriculum and I got rooms ready for Sunday, and I worked long, hard hours for their, like, backyard summer camp programs that they did. But, but because it was an internship and not just a job, um, I was invited to sit in on a lot of meetings. They had meetings for everything. They had meetings to prepare for other meetings, and then they had meetings to talk about the meetings that they just had. So, so one of the things that they talked about a lot in those meetings was curriculum, how to write a Bible study. Um, And so being in kids' ministry, I was exposed to a lot of discussion of elementary curriculum. Uh, The truth is, though, that that a lot of the principles of even elementary curriculum cross over into other groups. For instance, 
at the top of every piece of curriculum that we produced had the words to know, to feel, and to respond typed at the top. And this wasn't just for the students, it was for parents and teachers as well. So every time we planned a lesson, we wanted to make it crystal clear what we wanted the students to know after they were done with the lesson, how that knowledge affects their heart, uh, what they should feel, and then how should they respond? What What should we do with this information? I remember one time um, during a particularly hot backyard summer camp, um, we we let the kids swim in a pool at a time that, like, wasn't planned in the curriculum. I think it might have been at BJ's house, actually, but I don't know. Anyway, later on, we, we got to talking about, we got to talking to about it because the pastor wanted us to explain Uh, what the no-feel-respond principles were uh, to that part of the lesson. Um, You know, we just wanted the kids to swim in the pool. I replied, well, you know, we wanted them to know that they could swim in the pool. Um, We wanted them to feel wet. uh, And we wanted them to respond by having fun and not bothering us for a half an hour or so. He wasn't amused. So still... The overall principles of to know, to feel, and res- to respond have stuck with me. Um, as I, and I, as I wrestled with Daniel 8 this week, they came to mind. Because at first read-through, it is one of those passages, one of those chapters that has one of those like, wow, what am I going to say about that? It's like a wow, what am I going to say about that kind of chapter? So what I want to do is I want us to, I want to walk you through the chapter like we usually do, and then I want to go through that no-feel-respond exercise. And before we jump into Daniel 8, the important thing for us to know about Daniel is that chapters 2 through 7, what we've been in through the past month or so, um, wasn't written in Hebrew. The vast majority of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but Daniel 2 through 7 is written in Aramaic, the language common among ancient empires. As we've seen over the past month, these these chapters emphasize God's sovereignty over all of creation. God is the real deal, accept no substitutes. As we saw last week, This all culminated in chapter 7 with Daniel having this vision of one like a son of man being handed dominion and uh, an everlasting kingdom by God, the ancient of days. It's just such a cool chapter, Daniel 7. We talked about how Daniel 7 is one of the key passages that Jesus uses um, and the rest of the New Testament for that matter. And they quote it all the time that this one like a son of man actually turns out to be Jesus Christ who is handed the keys of the kingdom and ultimately handed dominion. Jesus is the one true king, not just of Israel, but of the entire cosmos, which is why the first thing we hear from Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. The good news being that the king has returned and that salvation is offered to all. So, We might have thought, though, you you read through that, you come to the end of Daniel chapter 7, and you're thinking, well, that might have been a good place to end the book of Daniel. After all, Daniel 1 through 6, we hear all these hero stories, right, uh, that require Daniel and his friends to stand up to the king. And then in Daniel chapter 7, bam, 
like the curtain gets pulled back for Daniel and he sees this vision uh, of God's ultimate plan to establish an eternal kingdom. Amen. All things are in God's hands. The thing is, for Daniel, that's not the end of the story. In fact, Daniel chapters 7 and 8 take place chronologically before the incident with the handwriting on the wall and before the incident with the lions. So Daniel might be thinking, hey God, this is great that you're going to one day put the world back together again and hand dominion over to the Son of Man guy. Um, and, 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 but, 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 but in the meantime, we're all still in exile here. So biblical scholars will tell you that the reason why it's important to point out that that the final five chapters of the book of Daniel, the, the reason why it's important to point out that those five chapters are written in Hebrew is that these chapters are going to emphasize Israel's place in the story of all things. Israel has a place in the story of all things and they prepare us for the coming of Israel's Messiah. So it's especially important for us to be thinking about that now because we're going to look at these five chapters over the next four weeks and they're going to kind of um, prepare, and then we're going to look at two other prophetic passages, all of which will help us on our Advent march to Christmas. For now, though, we return to Daniel 8, to this vision that Daniel had. So the chapter begins from Daniel's perspective. He tells us that in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, he had a vision. So chronologically, this is happening between the events of chapters 4 and 5. He tells us that in the vision, he, he was in Susa the citadel in the province of Elam, and that specifically he was at the Ulai Canal, all of which is east of Babylon in the land that we now call Iran. In the vision, Daniel looks up and he sees a ram standing on the bank of the canal. The ram has two horns. The one horn was higher than the other. And evidently, Daniel had watched the horns grow out of the ram's head. And the higher horn went up after the shorter horn. He then sees the ram charging westward towards Babylon, northward towards Lydia, and southward towards Egypt. The reason not eastward is because that's Persia. And Daniel's going to find out that the ram is going to at least partially represent Persia. So Daniel sees that the ram is powerful, he does as he pleases, and this ram becomes great. But then, Daniel sees a goat, who he says, had come from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. So this goat is moving quickly, and he's quickly covering a large amount of territory, right? And this goat has a horn that is conspicuous. It's obvious. It's right between his eyes. This horn is a great leader that's going to arise. And then Daniel sees this goat attack the ram and break the ram's horns. And the ram was powerless to defend itself, and this goat threw the ram to the ground and trampled on him. No one could rescue the ram and the goat because the goat was even more great and powerful. So I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, well, obviously, this is a prophecy of the New England Patriots who won their first and last Super Bowl, Tom Brady Super Bowl victory against the Rams. 
I was like, I was just curious. I was like, I wonder what, I'm talking about goats, I wonder what Tom Brady's record against the Rams were. And darned if he didn't have two Super Bowl victories against the Rams. Anyway, I just, I preach the text as it's written. You know, it's easy to see how, you know, people can do like extraordinarily crazy things with texts like this. Um, so we're told that the goat had become exceedingly great, right? You, when you think of greatness, you think about a goat. Um, when he was strong, and his horn was then broken. When he was strong, his horn was broken. And then the four horns, four other horns, kind of grew in its place in the direction of the four winds all over the earth. So what this is saying is that the goat's downfall is going to bring about the spreading of power over the whole earth. One of the, out of one of these horns came another little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, the east, and towards the glorious and beautiful land of Jerusalem. This little horn grew great and powerful even to the host of heaven. Even the host of heaven thought it was great. It acted arrogantly towards the prince of the heavenly host, probably a reference to the archangel Michael. Daniel sees this little horn desecrate the sanctuary. He sees that, that, there's, that, that, that he, he says that, that truth is thrown to the ground. Truth itself is thrown to the ground. Really dark stuff. And then he hears these, these two angels. He overhears these two angels talking to each other. And, and one of them asks, hey, you know, um, how, how long is this whole desecration of the temple thing? How, how long is this going to last? And the other angel responds, about 2,300 evenings and mornings. And then the sanctuary shall be restored. Then, chapter, or verse 15, Daniel says this. He says, now that I've seen the vision, I want to understand it. So, it's understandable that Daniel would be bewildered here. And he's like, well, I want to understand this thing now. So suddenly Daniel said that he saw this guy standing on the banks of the river. Again, this is all in his vision. He, stands this, he sees this guy standing on the banks of the river who calls out, hey, Gabriel, this guy doesn't understand what's going on. Help him understand all of this. And so Gabriel goes over and he, he goes over to Daniel. And um, as is usually the case when an angel speaks to a human... Daniel falls on his face and he's scared to death. But Gabriel says to him, first, understand, mortal, that the vision, this vision here that you're seeing is for the time of the end. So there is certainly a sense in which this vision is going to be of something that is going to happen. But it's also important to point out that it is something that is going to continue to happen throughout the ages until God ultimately puts the world to rights. The vision that Daniel is seeing is emblematic of how the world works. Daniel starts speaking, or Gabriel starts speaking to Daniel, and Daniel just collapses with his face to the ground, and he goes into a trance. Like, if you're having a dream in a dream, you know it's bad. Gabriel touches him and helps him to his feet and tells him that, that he's going to help explain what's going on. So if, if you're sitting there like, gosh, I just, I don't, I'm not following any of this. Like, you're in good company. Daniel didn't know what was going on either. Gabriel explains that that ram with the two horns represents the kingdoms of Media and Persia, who will soon conquer the Babylonians. But the goat, that's the king of Greece. That horn between his eyes, that, that one conspicuous horn from the goat, that, that's going to be like a great king. And this king, this king is really going to be something. The, the king of Greece, 
We can speculate, but I think this is pretty safe to say. The king of Greece most likely is a reference to Alexander the Great, who conquered the known world in a way that that no one had before. Alexander was born in Macedonia, and he was raised to rule. He was personally tutored by Aristotle and helped his father, Philip II, to unite the Greeks under his command. When Philip died, Alexander took the throne and turned his attention now towards Persia. His strategy outmatched the Persian numbers. He fought battles with outnumbered armies and declared victory after victory after victory. And by the time he went south, he eventually, he virtually took Egypt unopposed. And then the Egyptian priests even declared him Pharaoh. He then took Babylon and other big cities and finished his victory over Persia, crowning himself the great king, as Daniel says. He thought of himself as a Greek hero, like, like Hercules or Achilles. In the east, he went as far as India before his legions had had enough, and he begged Alexander to turn back. And his empire stretched, so his empire stretched from, from northern Africa all the way to India. And that's likely what this whole reference to the king of Greece is all about. Alexander the Great did exactly what the goat did. He swiftly took control over the ram and more. But then, picking up in verse 22, the horn was broken. Alexander died. Alexander was a vicious alcoholic, and he died, of all, in all places, uh, Babylon. He died in Babylon at the age of 32. So Gabriel tells Daniel that, that in its place, that when this, this, this king dies, four other horns will arise. And so what history tells us is that Alexander's empire was split into successor kingdoms after he died, but none would have the, the power, the concentrated power of Alexander the Great. Still, we can see that one of those successor kingdoms would take control of, of Palestine, of the area of, of Judea and Jerusalem. This led to the Hellenization of Jewish culture that produced, uh, among other things, it produced the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was likely very familiar to people like Jesus and Paul. As we look back on it now, we actually can see that the conquest of Alexander the Great culturally paved the way for the Roman Empire to spread and uh, spread its power centuries later and subsequently allowed for the gospel to spread. It's fascinating when you read history to see how God works over the course of the centuries. I mean, to Daniel, he might have only seen like this little bit, but, but in hindsight, we can look back at the ancient world and go, oh, well, that happened, that happened, oh, I see how this was all working together. Back to Daniel. Gabriel tells Daniel, verse 23, that one day when the transgressors had reached their limit, a king of bold face who understands riddles, shall arise. His power will be great. This is a a king of the successor kingdoms. His power will be great, um, but not quite because of his power, but because because of something else. And he'll cause fearful destruction, destroy many warriors and people of God's community. By his own cunning, verse 25, he'll make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he'll become great. He will quickly destroy many and will rise up against even the mightiest of kings. And he shall eventually be broken, but not by human hand. 
meaning that eventually God is going to defeat this desecration. And at the end of the vision, Gabriel tells Daniel, hey guy, all of this is true, but that's the, that, that the vision should be sealed up because it refers to something that's going to happen many days from now. Daniel will be long and dead before any of this takes place. Then in verse 27, Daniel wakes up, and he was in bed sick for days. He wakes up sick, he's in bed of days, and once he feels better, he got up, and he went about the king's business. He went back to work, and he said, I was appalled by the vision, and I didn't understand it. So, if Daniel didn't understand the vision that he was given, what hope do we have? That's the chapter. But back to our opening questions, right? What should we know? What should we feel? And how should we respond? First, what should we know? Well, we could point out that history tells us that two of Alexander's successor kingdoms were at war around 200 BC. And the Seleucid kings took control of Palestine away from the Ptolemies. After this happened, Hellenization quickened, like the Greek way of life, the Greco way of life, it it quickened, and a king rose to power called Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes wanted to combine the peoples, meaning he wanted to Hellenize the Jews. And even the high priest of Jerusalem at the time was said to have supported the king's attempts to bring over his fellow countrymen to the Greek way of life. Greek schools were set up in Jerusalem. Judaism was outlawed. And in 168 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes ordered that an altar be erected in the temple of Jerusalem and sacrifices be offered to Zeus. So so the first century uh, historian uh, Josephus, he described it this way. He said, he sacrificed swine on the altars and bespattered the temple with their grease thus perverting the rights of the Jews and the piety of their fathers. So so here, a pagan king had his way with the temple in Jerusalem. What the Jewish people saw as the intersection of heaven and earth talk about a spirit-breaking event. No wonder Daniel heard the angel call it the transgression that makes desolate. In that moment, hundreds of years after Daniel, it would have seemed like all hope was lost. Like watching, you're sitting there and you've, you've put your hopes and your dreams into this land and your entire life, your entire identity is before you in this temple and you see this is what's happening. The pagans are, are trampling on like the goat that, that had trampled over the ram. The pagans are trampling over the temple and doing the most horrible, disgusting things to the things of God. This was a failing that the Hebrew people had felt before, right? Because we know the whole story. We know the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Exodus, Moses, all that. The Hebrew had felt like hope was lost before. And I think that's a big part of what we should know about this passage, is that God is saying, I know it's going to feel like All hope is lost. But that's not the end of the story. In 166 BC, and this is just a piece of what happens next. In 166 BC, there's a man named Judas Maccabeus 
who led an armed revolt against the Seleucids and eventually miraculously prevailed. The Jewish priests rededicated the temple. It was restored at least for another two centuries until the Romans took it over. And they rededicated the temple. The people thought that the Greeks had desolated the sacred space so much that there was nothing left. The only thing that they had, the only thing that, gosh, we, we're looking around, we're trying to see what else what was left, and the only thing they could find, the only thing they had was this menorah that had just a little bit of light, uh, oil in it that they thought would go out after a day, but this light prevailed for eight days while they celebrated this restoration of the temple. And that, friends, is the oversimplified bo- uh, story of, of Hanukkah. But, but Jesus also picks up this language years later in the days of Rome. Just before the crucifixion, Jesus is in Jerusalem with his disciples and the guys are marveling at this temple and all of the wonderful buildings that they see. And Jesus tells them, guys, don't put your trust in any of this. All of this will be torn down in one way or the other. And then he takes them to the Mount of Olives, which is in view of Herod's temple. And Herod's temple was a sight to see. And he predicts its own destruction. It's, it's destruction. He tells them it's going to happen. Things are going to be awful. But, but while talking to them, he draws from language from the book of Daniel to describe the coming siege of Jerusalem that will happen uh, by the hands of the Romans in 70 A.D. I've already put way too much history in this sermon, so we don't need to go into that, except to say that it was horrible. It was a horrible time to be alive. Jesus even comments that it will be awful to be a nursing mother in those days. It would appear that Jesus wants us to know that as Gabriel had instructed Daniel, that war and desolation are unfortunately a part of our future. There will be tribulation that threaten God's people. Jesus warns his followers not to fight to the bitter end. He tells them, get out of there, guys, when this happens, get out. You have more important things to think about than misguided national loyalty. But, but ultimately, whether it's Alexander the Great or Antiochus Epiphanes or the Roman legions, as bad as things look, I want you to know that ultimately God is still on the throne. Don't forget that lesson that we learn from Daniel 2 through 7. Ultimately, all things are in God's hands, even things we don't understand, even though it's going to take thousands of years For even us to get a glimpse of perspective on what God was doing there. God's saying, I am so big that you you can barely comprehend exactly what's going on. But remember, I'm your God. I want you to trust me, follow me. Keep your eyes focused on me because there's going to be so much distraction out there. Guys, keep your mind focused on me. This is why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. And all the blessings will be added to you. Keep your eyes focused. It's like God, in, it's like Jesus is saying, guys, keep your eyes here. I know all this destruction. I know all this nastiness is happening going around. And, and it's going to look like all hope is lost. But keep your eyes focused on me. That's what we need to know. But how should we feel? How does this affect our heart? I take some hope from the fact that at the end of Daniel's vision, as Steve pointed out before the service, we're told that he was sick, confused, and appalled. And then we're told he went back to work. I mean, this is Daniel. This is one of the brightest characters in the Old Testament. And when God gives him a vision, he's distraught over it. Did you notice how in the story, 
and the story from last week, by the way, Daniel has these sort of kind of sidebar conversations with the angels. Oh, hey, hey, oh, hey, man, you want to know what this means? I think those conversations show us that Daniel wasn't the point. Daniel wasn't actually ever the hero of this, his own book. Um, th- this was never about Daniel. Daniel was just given a glimpse of things that were to come, but, but none of this was about, it, about Daniel himself. So, so what do I take away from that? I take away that I think, at first, it's okay to be distraught. It's okay to be confused. It's okay to lament the, the awful things that we see in the world around us. It's okay to, 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 re, to watch the news, which again is a very narrow view of what's, the, what's going on around the world. And We look at the news and we read this commentary about what's going on and we say, I don't, I don't understand it, God. I don't understand it. Well, you're in good company because Daniel saw that little vision and, and that's how he felt too. It's okay to feel confused by this. I mean, here we are in church and we're talking about goats and, and rams and high school history and Daniel walked away bewildered and it's okay if we do as well. But Daniel also went back to work, which I think sometimes if you read history and you're reading uh, the news and you're so bewildered by everything that you're seeing around you, sometimes the most important thing you can do is just get up and go about your day. Do your job. Be a father. Be a, be a mother. Be a grandfather. Be a grandmother. Whatever your role is, do that. Focus on people. It, it's okay to be confused by all of this, but... Um, more importantly, it's also important that we feel secured by, by all of this because God isn't surprised by any of it. More importantly, he is sovereign over it. God is in the business. If I know anything about our God, it's that he is in the business of redemption. He is able to brilliantly redeem the past in a way that I couldn't even begin to think about. No matter how dark it gets, God is in the business of redemption. God is able to turn the the complex, complicated, confusing past and, and, and actually manifest it for his glory and our edification. Our God is in the business of redemption. He is able to do this no matter how dark it gets. But I also think that, that God does want us to feel secure. I mean, that was the lesson that Daniel learned from this. He woke up, and even though he was bewildered, he went back to the king's business. He did his job. And when a time came for him to stand up for what he believed in, he got into that lion's den. Because remember, he saw this vision before the whole thing with the lions. He got into the lion's den because he knew. What's the worst that could, the king could do to me? Kill me? Throw me into this lion's den? I've been given just a glimpse of what God is actually doing. And the worst that the king can do with me is kill me. But I know that even down in the pit of the lion's den, even in the tomb, God is still sovereign. So we should feel secure. We should feel enlivened by that, I think. And how should we respond? Well, I think we should take a page out of Daniel's book. And though the nations may rage and polarized politics seem to get worse and the pandemic is still with us and sometimes it seems like the world is turned upside down, we are invited in Jesus Christ to live out a whole new way of being human. 
the things that are important to this world, the things like, like conquering empires, whether they be uh, the ancient empires of armies or the modern-day empires of corporate business or whatever they are, we are invited to respond by following Jesus out of exile the way that he left exile, the way of the cross, a cruciform path out of exile that walks not by rage, not by conquest, not by thumbing our nose at the empire, but by following the path of peace, by embodying peace for our community, the path of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. This is the whole new way of being human. This is the way of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus invites us, hey guys, I know you're under the thumb of oppression. I know that seems like the world is barreling down on you. The way out is the path of love. The way out is not through war and conquest. The way is by embodying, being a people who embody peace. Being a people who live out joy. Being a people who stand up for the oppressed. I mean, isn't it interesting that Jesus makes a special point back in, in Mark 13, and he makes a special point of mentioning how awful this whole siege of Jerusalem thing is going to be for nursing mothers during that time. So, so maybe, rather than beating your chest and complaining about whoever's in charge, maybe uh, desecrating the temple, your attention maybe should be on a nursing mother, on people who need help. That doesn't mean that we don't have any place you know, in, in government and to speak out against the oppressors. I think we do. But the reason we do that is because the reason we speak up is because we know that it all was always in God's hands. It always has been in God's hands. It is in God's hands now, and it's always going to be in God's hands. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to embody peace, to embody love, to embody, embody joy. Let me pray for us. Father, we come at Bible passages like this, and we're just, God, I don't know what to do with it. Lord, help us to, to wrestle with us. Help us to remember that central to what it means to be um, uh, uh, one of your followers studying Scripture um, is that we, we wrestle. And like Jacob, sometimes we wrestle and we go away limping, right? We wrestle with this text. And we go, oh, I'm not really sure what it means. And like Daniel, we wake up and we're sick to our stomach. We're sick to our stomach after we read the news. We're sick to our stomach after we hear about how, how politics have driven our families apart from each other. We're sick to our stomach about, oh, that, that person said that. They said that. They, they dug that extra, they, they added that extra biting comment. Oh, Lord, I, I just don't know. It seems like things are so dark. Lord, help us to remember, to, to, to help us to remember that, that the path of love and joy and peace is within our grasp. The kingdom of God is within our grasp. It's at hand. We are invited to walk this way. Walk this way of, of humility. Lord, we, we've often reminded each other that humility is the Christian superpower. Just watch. Try it on for size. Try on humility. Try walking the way of the cross, the way of sacrificial love, lying ourselves down and says, I'm not interested in building empire. Lord, I, I just want to serve people. I want to I serve 
a nursing mother that's in, hell, it's in need. I want to I serve my community. I want to give my life to helping people. Father, help me live that kind of life that you want me to live. Help us be a community that responds to your new way of being human by, by serving a broken world, by serving our community, by speaking up and standing for, for those who are oppressed, for, for feeding the poor and the hungry. Father, help us to be the person that you would want. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on your kingdom. And to the extent that we need to be responsible and, 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 and be responsible stewards of our voice, yes, we need to do that. Help us to remember how to do that. But, but Lord, help us to always remember that you are sovereign. You are on the throne. You are there and you're not silent. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.